0: Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app.
1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hello, I'm Neil Kirksal,
3: And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition.
2: Tonight, crossing a line, Canada's Auditor General says government officials ignored their own rules even as the budget for the Arrive can border app
3: ballooned. The 11th hour, more than a million displaced Palestinians are now packed inside Rafah and Israel is threatening a ground invasion. Our guest says this is the world's last chance to stop the bloodshed.
2: Bully pulpit at a rally, Donald Trump says Russia is welcome to attack any NATO member that doesn't pony up its full dues. An invitation one German politician tells us sounds a lot like mafia tactics.
3: Not enough fish in the sea, apparently. Did a stingray at an aquarium in North Carolina become pregnant by a shark in a Romeo and Juliet scenario? Or did it impregnate itself in a Juliet and Juliet scenario?
2: Oh dear, oh dear. A new roof for Montreal's Olympic Stadium could run more than $800 million, but tearing it down will cost a whole lot more. A local economist says it is time to say au revoir. To the big O.
3: And a mysterious package of mysterious packages. A gallery owner declares a penis amnesty after a statue is repeatedly vandalized by castration and somehow things get weirder when he receives a box of six clay phalluses. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that gives you the willies. Canada's Auditor General has added her name to the list of Canadians who have a bone to pick with the Arrive Can Travel app. The Canada Border Services Agency tool was supposed to keep things moving at the border in the face of pandemic-era health hurdles, but instead of reducing headaches, it became one for many travellers. And in a report released today, Auditor General Karen Hogan told Parliament that the officials responsible for outsourcing the development of the app showed what she called a, quote, "...glaring disregard for the basic rules of procurement." We reached Auditor General Karen Hogan in Ottawa.
2: Auditor General Hogan, you've said that, that you are deeply concerned by what this audit did not find. What were you looking for that wasn't there in front of you?
4: I was looking to see that uh, public servants would have um, documented well uh, during the pandemic uh, decisions that were made around the ArriveCan application so that they could demonstrate due diligence. And prudent use of public funds um, as they developed and implemented this application.
2: You've gone even further and, and said uh, that government officials showed a quote glaring disregard, end quote, for the develop- for the rules while developing the ArriveCan app. Just tell us a little bit more about, about what you mean by glaring disregard.
4: And you're right. I did find a glaring disregard for what I would say are some of the most basic financial and project management and contracting practices. I would have expected that when a project is launched, that someone sets out uh, an end game, a goal, and that a budget is put into place. It's really hard to manage something against your budget when there isn't a budget established. And, And that's what we found here is that neither the Canada Border Services Agency nor the Public Health Agency of Canada had really laid out some of those foundational elements you would see in the management of a project. Then when you turn to procurement practices that we looked at, there's a lot of rules and regulations in the government, federal government, that tell you what you should do even when it is a non-competitive process in addition to a competitive process. And we were just not seeing some of those key decisions about who made the decision to choose which vendor and why that was the right vendor to choose. And then when we looked at the invoices, we didn't see who carried out the work or what it related to. There were many IT projects on the way at the Canada Border Services Agency and uh, folks maintaining the records would have needed that basic information in order to be able to maintain proper and accurate financial records.
2: Your report also describes government officials receiving invitations to quote dinners and other activities, unquote. Can you tell us who, who was making those invitations and what those activities were?
4: so we did see some invitations uh, usually via email to individuals in the branch that were re- that was responsible for developing and implementing the ArriveCAN application those invitations came from a few vendors not not just one but a few vendors mm-hmm. to to several people um, we have no documentation to know whether folks attended those events or they didn't but What I was concerned about is the agency has a code of conduct and that code of conduct requires that a public servant inform their supervisor if they receive an invitation um, to a private function from a vendor. Um, that, That disclosure is needed so that the supervisor can then decide if measures need to be put into place because this increases the risk that there is real or perceived conflict of interest or bias in making procurement decisions but here again was one instance where we found that there was important documentation just missing if if individuals informed their supervisors none of it was documented and we were unable to show uh, whether or not appropriate measures had been put in place to mitigate the risk
2: the cbsa responded to your report by saying uh, it was quote working as quickly as possible to replace a paper process that was not meeting public health needs and was also impacting The border. End quote. This was, of course, the height of the pandemic, and and you've heard that people needed to move quickly. But at this point, is it sounding to you like it was the pandemic? Is the new the dog ate my homework here?
4: Well, I I I do want to point out that we did two reports in 2021 related to measures at the border. And in the second, we actually found that the Arrive Canada application improved the quality of the information that the government was collecting from travelers entering into the country. And it also improved the timeliness of the ability for the government to follow up with travelers. So, for example, when it was paper-based, sometimes it would take the Public Health Agency of Canada almost 28 days before they received contact information from a traveler. Really hard to make sure that they properly quarantine for 14 days when you've received it well after Uh, the quarantine period. So there was definitely some value and it improved the service um, to Canadians and the ability to track border measures. But the need to be quick and effective doesn't eliminate the need to show accountability and transparency to Canadians. And that's what I would have expected. I don't think every decision or every step along the way needed to be supported and documented, but some of the really key ones should have been done. An emergency is not an excuse uh, to ignore the most basic requirements of maintaining complete and accurate records for transparency and accountability.
2: And we should mention the CBSA I- is investigating RCMP. Uh, there's an investigation underway as well around all of this and and, and the procurement. Conservative leader Pierre Poilievre is responding to your report today and promising if if. He was uh, in charge to reverse what he says is the Trudeau government's, quote, doubling of outsourcing. You mentioned procurement um, a a moment ago, but outsourcing in particular, how much was that a part of the problems you found?
4: So we found that the uh, agencies, the the public health agency, as well as the Canada Border Service Agency, had identified early on that they just didn't have the skills or the capacity at the start of the pandemic to develop this app. So it's very reasonable that the public service would turn to a third party to help them develop it. What I would have expected, however, as time went on, um, we're, we're going into a few years, that that dependency and reliance on an external resource would have been reduced for a few reasons. One is it's important to transition some of the knowledge and work into the public service, but also reducing that dependency on a third party would have provided better value for money. And in this case, we did not see that happening.
2: Auditor General Hogan, I appreciate
4: your time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
3: Karen Hogan is the Auditor General of Canada. We reached her in Ottawa. There is nowhere left for civilians in Gaza to go. More than 1.4 million Palestinians are now crammed into Rafah, the last remaining city that has not been emptied out by Israel's bombardment. That's more than five times the community's usual population. That alone is a recipe for humanitarian disaster. But as you've heard, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is threatening a ground invasion of the city. Already today, Israeli airstrikes reportedly killed at least 67 Palestinians during a joint IDF Shin Bet operation to rescue two Israeli hostages. Hamas is claiming that three other hostages died of injuries sustained in those strikes. Meanwhile, the few aid organizations that are still operational say the prospect of a full-blown military operation in the city is unthinkable. Shaina Lowe is with the Norwegian Refugee Council. We reached her in Jerusalem.
2: Shayna, is an assault on Rafah imminent, or is it already underway?
5: You know, we really don't know at this at this time how serious the Israeli operation on Rafah will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like after last night, things have calmed down a bit. But one thing that we've seen throughout the last four months of of this escalation is that it never has been a, a safe area. We've had colleagues at NRC who were in who sought shelter in, in Rafa in October who were bombed in their house and, and lost multiple members of their family. So it's really not a matter of if Rafa will be attacked but how severely and that is still to be told.
2: The NRC, the Norwegian Refugee Council, said that a ground invasion could bring what's left of the humanitarian aid apparatus in Gaza, quote, to a halt, end quote. So how are you even functioning, your teams there right now, given what you've just described?
5: Well, over the last uh, month or so, we were actually able to scale up our operations in, in Rafa, uh, working as best as we can to support around a dozen sites, hosting about 30,000 people. But in order for us to do that and to continue to do that and to continue to scale up our operations, we need a few things. First is assurances that our staff, uh, is safe, and on top of that, all of the aid and assistance that's coming in uh, to Gaza right now is coming in through Rafah, either through the Rafah crossing um, from Egypt or through the Kerem Shalom crossing uh, into Israel. And so, uh, if if hostilities were to intensify, if Israel were as they've as they've uh, said that they plan to do, uh, expand their ground operation into into Rafah, it would it would. Um, most likely put a halt to our operations because we wouldn't be getting in the aid that we need Mm -hmm. to distribute and we wouldn't be able to send our staff out to do their jobs.
2: While you were scaling up uh, and doing all the work you discussed there, the NRC also completed an assessment of nine shelters. Those shelters are housing more than 27,000 civilians in Rafa. What did you find?
5: We found that the conditions that displaced people were living in were just simply unimaginable. Uh, hundreds of people sharing a single toilet most of the facilities did not have any showers uh, lack of access to clean water and and we identified a number of diseases in all of these sites everything from lice to uh, hepatitis A uh, respiratory illness intestinal flu spread of all sorts of diseases that you can imagine would would be prevalent in places where there's little sanitation and people living in incredibly close quarters.
2: One of your colleagues, Youssef Hamash, who is in Rafah, spoke with our, our CBC radio colleague Brent Bambury uh, over the weekend. We're going to play you and our listeners a, a little bit of that conversation now.
4: Yeah, and unfortunately, we run
2: out of options. There is no more options for us to take. We are trapped here in Rafah. We cannot move from Rafah to any different location. So literally, we are trapped between the
6: Egyptian border and Israeli tanks.
2: It's been so hard to establish communication with teams there. Uh, Our our producers have certainly been trying, and we speak to to folks when we can. What else are you hearing from your colleagues specifically today?
5: You know, I checked in with Youssef first thing this morning, and uh, first of all, he had no internet at at the location where he was sleeping, so he got up as he would any other day and went to our office, and that's where he was first notified that we had we had requested that our staff not um, move at all today because of the the bombardments in Rafa last night. But what he told me about last night was that he just simply didn't sleep. The bombardments were everywhere. It was incredibly loud. It was incredibly scary. And and knowing that that Benjamin Netanyahu has already stated that he plans to to expand the operations into into Rafah for Palestinians in Gaza, they they thought that that the bombardments last night were the start of that expanded operation. And they were petrified because as as Yusuf says so eloquently, they are trapped. Um and, and Yusuf said I heard Yusuf say earlier today that basically they feel like if this operation were to expand, then really the only choice that people have is how they would choose to die.
2: Yeah, I've I've heard people say that the dead are more fortunate than us in some cases. And what you just said and what they've said uh, is difficult to hear. Is difficult to hear. Uh uh-huh. The British Foreign Secretary, uh, you may have heard David Cameron, says his government is concerned about the situation in Rafah and wants Israel to, quote, think very seriously before it takes any further action, end quote. Joe Biden says Israel must not expand its military operations in Rafah without, quote, a credible and executable plan for ensuring the safety of more than one million people sheltering there, unquote. The EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, had some strong words in response
7: if you believe that too many people are being killed, maybe you should provide less arms in order to prevent so many people being killed. It's not logical.
2: Do you think a ground invasion in Rafa might compel countries like the United States to listen to what Borrell is saying there?
5: I, I mean, who would have thought that we would have gotten to the point where we have 28,000 000- Palestinians dead in four months um and so i'm I'm really not sure what it will take uh, in order for countries to to do more to to prevent just unbelievable civilian loss what what we have seen is just simply unimaginable and while it is heartening to see that there are shifts in rhetoric that are happening far too late. Um, I, th- I think Burrell is right that we need to see uh, uh, arms transfers to Israel be restricted. And, and really, it's it's not just about the Israeli assaults, but it's also on the conscience of the countries that are supplying Israel with these weapons that are causing such tremendous death and, and devastation and destruction throughout Gaza.
2: Shaina, thank you for your time.
3: Thank you. Shaina Lowe is a spokesperson with the Norwegian Refugee Council. We reached her in Jerusalem. The stadium has about 20,000 little holes in its Teflon roof. Anytime there's a possibility of three centimeters of snow, it's shut down. Obviously that would not be an issue in Maui or Mexico City, but in Montreal, it's a problem. So up to half the year, the city's Olympic stadium just sits there, conspicuously out of commission, but never out of sight. And now the landmark has a new lease on life. Last week, the province announced that it had hired construction firms to build it a new non-retractable all-weather roof. The price tag is $870 million, and it will take four years. But tearing it down, they say, would cost $2 billion. Moshe Lander is a professor of economics at Concordia University. We reached Mr. Lander in Montreal.
2: Moshe, Montreal's mayor, Valérie Plante, said last week you may have heard, quote, whether you say you love it or hate it, the Olympic Stadium has become a symbol of Montreal, unquote. What does it symbolize to you?
1: It's a symbol of everything that's wrong with Montreal. It plays exactly to the stereotype that Canada has about Montreal and Quebec. It's cost overruns, it's inefficiency, it's corruption, it's wasted government (sighs) money. It's an eyesore.
2: But maybe a makeover would help that. It's still a piece of history.
1: Yeah, it's an expensive piece of history. Uh, You know, to spend uh, $870 million, assuming that the budgeted number is correct, uh, makes it sound like it's the very first renovation that's been put into that stadium. That stadium has been broken almost since it opened, uh, and the the roof has never worked in the way that it was supposed to. To try and extend its life, merely on the idea that it's some part of the skyline, is really really expensive, especially when you don't have anybody lined up that's going to use
2: it. The minister of tourism, Caroline Prue, said this stadium could attract. Beyonce, Bruce Springsteen, Taylor Swift, they didn't come to Montreal on their last tours. So they're they're in the camp, or she's in the camp of, if you build it, they will come. Why not turn it into an enticing concert venue?
1: Well, you know, you can put a roof on the place, but the inside still is not acoustically fit for those types of concert acts. The 21st century concert is not the same as the 20th century concert that I remember. <laughs> uh, you know, the inside still needs to be massively renovated. It's still... Uh, almost in the same shape as it was when the Montreal Expos played there, and that's now almost 20 years ago. Uh, The seats are not designed for the modern experience. The floor is cement. Uh, The design of the bowl is part of the cigarette ashtray design that existed in St. Louis, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, (laughs) Philadelphia 50 years ago, and all of those buildings have been knocked down because they're well past their prime, and they were all replaced with something that's more 21st century acoustically designed, to attract the Beyonce's, the Taylor Swift's, Mm -hmm. the Drake's, uh, and the Bruce Springsteen's, so it's not even fixed once they address the route.
2: What about something that acoustics aren't necessary for? uh, Spaces, sports. Any chance that that this could be a hot ticket sports venue?
1: No, it wasn't a hot (laughs) ticket sports venue when the Expos left town, and that's part of the reason why they left town. It was such a terrible stadium. Uh, you, you know, to play in fifty, sixty thousand seats, uh, it's not meant for hockey. Uh, if somehow, against hope, uh, basketball comes to Montreal, they would play at the Bell Centre, which is where the Canadians play. Uh, and if that arena reaches the end of its life in the next fifteen to twenty years, they're going to move to something that seats eighteen to twenty thousand, not fifty or sixty. That leaves them the NFL, which would not expand into Montreal, uh, or the CFL, which could not fill up that stadium. Uh, or soccer, which has a dedicated facility that's already in its existence right now.
2: Correct me if I'm wrong, Moshe, but I don't think you like the stadium.
1: (laughs) You are not wrong. I don't (laughs) like the stadium. Um, But, you know, I'm skeptical of a lot of stadiums when you put public funds into them, because they're often used to justify large amounts of taxpayer money and the promise that somehow... You said it. If you build it, they will come. And unfortunately, they don't come. And what they leave behind is a legacy of large costs. And so it just seems that you're trying to protect some sort of political legacy uh, rather than building it on sound economics.
2: Tearing this down, the minister says, it is going to be even more costly. Two billion dollars because of the fact that it's on top of a metro station, the the type of, of build it was uh, originally
1: Yeah, I mean, you want to say that it's $2 billion. I could tell you it's a $1 billion, might be $5 billion. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the problem is that let's say it's $2 billion, and I believe that that's massively overstated. Uh, Somebody deserves to be sued for that. Uh, How could you build a stadium that now cannot be destroyed because of the prohibitive cost that would be involved? That would seem like utter negligence at the time that it was constructed. And so whether that's the city, the province, the builders, whoever it was, Somebody deserves a big lawsuit for now basically causing a a huge amount of taxpayer money uh, to go into renovating that place with no known tenant, with no known concert dates, with no known ideas to how it's going to be utilized, merely on the grounds of it's just too expensive to destroy. It just seems like it's a major, major problem. Uh, But the reality is that if you can build a stadium these days from scratch – For a billion, billion and a half, I can't imagine that it's $2 billion to destroy what's already there. It's empty. Nobody's using it. Uh, And if you can take $870 million to take the roof off and put a new roof on, are you really going to tell me that it's about $1.5 billion to destroy the actual bowl itself? You could probably take it apart in bits and pieces that wouldn't disrupt the metro line underneath. And it still wouldn't cost $2 billion. It almost seems like what they're doing is trying to throw a number out there that scares people into saying, oh, well, I guess $870 million spent is better than $2 billion spent.
2: So if you had your way, if they took your advice, what do you want the government to do with this
1: site? Well, I totally agree that they should take the roof off. But once the roof is <laughs> off, I'd also take a wrecking ball right through the middle of that open roof and I'd smash out the sides as well. Uh, That thing needs to go. Uh, So why not put up social housing? Every city in Canada is talking about housing shortages and the problems of affordable housing. Uh, So why not use it to try and alleviate some of the social problems? Even if you have to spend a couple billion dollars, the fact that it would lead to thousands of families that could live in that space for decades to come seems a lot better than Taylor Swift.
3: Moshe, thank you. Anytime. Moshe Lander is a professor of economics at Concordia University. We reached him in Montreal. Donald Trump is not known for subtlety, so his message to America's NATO allies was characteristically blunt start paying up or else. Here's what he said at a weekend rally in his bid to recapture the White House, recounting a conversation he says took place at a 2018 NATO summit when he was president.
1: They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, Well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, You didn't pay. You're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay.
5: You got to pay your bills.
3: Those remarks are still reverberating today in Europe, in Canada and in Washington. Here's Mr. Trump's rival for the Republican nomination, former UN ambassador Nikki Haley, speaking about the threat posed by Russian President Vladimir Putin.
4: Keep in mind that this is a man who has wanted to destroy America and defeat America for years. I dealt with Russia every single day. It is a mistake for Trump to side with Putin over our allies. We needed a lot of friends after 9-11. We better remember that.
3: Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley speaking earlier today with Bloomberg News. German MEP Sergei Lagodinsky is in Brussels. That's where we reached him.
2: Sergei, when you heard those words, do whatever they want from the former U.S. President Donald Trump, what was your gut reaction?
8: Well, this was the actual piece that really angered me and surprised me in the sense because this was really reckless and this is really kind of a mafia type talk. Uh, So um, Trump can still surprise us.
2: When you say mafia type talk, elaborate.
8: Well, we're used to uh, uh, Trump uh, speaking in transactional terms. So the first part of what he said, you know, if you don't pay, we do not protect you. <laughs> That's very transactional. That shows that, uh, you know, no values, no mm-hmm. solidarity, no strategic outlook is there. It's just pure transactionalism. But the other part, you know, goes beyond it. It's it's kind of... Um, almost a sadistic way of forcing, you know, someone who is dependent on you to to pay, uh, kind of a a ransom, and if not, encouraging the attacker to actually show what it is worth to pay or not to pay. And and this is something that is really kind of a prison-type, mafia-type way of uh, uh, dealing with your, you know, companions or partners.
2: And it sounds like you believe that this is more than just the kind of talk that people are used to hearing from Trump bluster, uh, and certainly not diplomatic, but deeper than that.
8: Well, we're used to this stream of consciousness, you know, when when he when he speaks. But uh, boy, what a conscious, you know, it's like, what a mindset. And this is something which is, of course, worrisome, especially now following the interview by Putin and uh, an interview done by a a friend, basically, of of Trump, uh, basically signaling towards Kremlin, you know, you're free to try it out. We can leave it ambivalent. You know, he's not saying he's not going to protect, you know, he's Mm -hmm. saying it's conditioned. Uh, And that already in itself, is basically a breach of any reliability of a guarantee, of a security guarantee, on which so far the NATO uh, mutual promise was built on. And this is worse.
2: If Russian President Vladimir Putin were to take this uh, as an opening to to encroach on NATO territory, what do you think that, that might look like? What countries do you think should be worried
8: well, I don't think it's it's going to happen uh, fast, but this is definitely kind of an invitation uh, into the future. You know, first of all, uh, we're seeing that the administration, if upcoming change of power in the White House, is it's the transition is still going to take a year at least. And then, uh, you know, there are still structures, uh, both within the establishment in the United States and within NATO, that can contain you know fast changes but this eroding of uh, erosion of of this mutual promise of nato is something that is already signaled now and especially for us here in brussels where we see how long it would take for us if at all to be able to substitute the uh, american capabilities by our own that's a long-term project and uh, That uh, of course causes a lot of unease uh, here on this side of the ocean.
2: Republicans, senior Republicans, in fact, have said they're they're not worried. Senator Tom Cotton uh, said countries like Germany, although uh, I recognize that Germany has increased its defense spending recently. Senator Cotton says countries like yours do not spend enough on defense, and Trump is simply, as he put it, ringing the warning bell. How do you respond?
8: Well, there are smart ways to ring the warning bell, and uh, there are ways that are absolutely stupid. You you know, you don't ring a bell if you're talking openly and uh, you are projecting to the whole world your fantasies, uh, uh, you know, basically inviting the aggressor uh, to go on with aggression. So um, I understand what Senator Cotton is saying. This is something that many of us have been saying, and to be honest... Most European countries do have a a rethinking moment, um, but it is not easy to transform our economies, our uh, armies um, in an instantaneous way. It's also a lot about coordination, and it's also a lot about capabilities that are not easy to substitute if we're talking about nuclear capabilities. It's not an easy task because it's not just having a couple of you know nuclear um, uh, missiles it's it's a whole system which should be safe secure and reliable and it is not possible uh, to substitute it uh, in uh, five years or um, two years
2: there's a significant meeting a NATO meeting on Thursday what do you want to hear and see come out of that meeting
8: I think it's important that NATO is sending a signal that we stay together and we stay together collectively. Uh, There is a lot of talk within uh, NATO now, for example, about the future uh, of our Ukraine aid and whether NATO should be the organization that will take over from the American leadership in providing capabilities to Ukraine. Ukraine is the test case for the solidarity transatlantically and within the nato in general and and also projecting uh, towards the other side that we are serious about restructuring our capabilities about our decision-making systems as well but also on providing a very clear message of solidarity towards countries like the baltic states or poland who are uh, in the epicenter of uh, Putin's uh, fantasies, and uh, they are not out of reach.
2: Sergey, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
8: Thank you so much.
3: Sergey Lagodinsky is a Green Party member of European Parliament, he's in Brussels. In the British town of Grimsby, a statue once stood tall and proud, a statue of the town founder, whose name was Grimm, with a baby on his shoulders, both of them nude. And there the statue continued to stand until it was moved into storage in 2006, slightly less tall and proud after years of being vandalized in a number of different creative and, frankly, traumatic ways. The most creative and traumatic being the repeated removal of the statue's various exposed body parts, one of which you have correctly guessed. The whereabouts of any of these pilfered appendages have remained a town mystery for years until a package from an unknown sender arrived at the doorstep of a local gallery, creating another mystery. Dale Wells is an artist and the owner of the Turntable Gallery. We reached him in Cleethorpes, England.
2: Dale, what did you find when you opened up this mystery package?
6: yeah so we uh we had a a bit of an unusual one um and we found a box it was just a it was just a a brown paper wrap box a bit of uh, writing on it and upon opening it, we had this shoe box inside the shoe box there was a cookie tin inside the cookie tin, so it's a bit like a Russian doll <laughs> inside the cookie tin there was straw uh with a note and six penises and also Looks like the workings of a, uh, a a gland as well. So I don't know if they were an option in different, yeah, the <laughs> the end of the penis. So okay. it looked like they were they were kind of going through uh, various uh, various options for uh, for the look. Right,
2: and is horrified the right word, or am I projecting?
6: No, I think you're projecting. <laughs> it's uh... <laughs> you were t- you were like totally fine. What a nice surprise. <laughs> You know what? Um, we, we are in almost one of the weirdest uh, counties in uh, in the country. Um, and this <laughs> if you weren't thing... before,
2: this will cement that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
6: exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's unsurprisingly kind of a uh, day, to be honest, for us. But um, yeah, we'd uh, we been involved with it so long that we it, it almost felt like there was a magnet kind of drawing these, uh, these penises yeah. in a tin towards us.
2: What did that note say?
6: Right, well, um, to sort of paraphrase it, it said something like, um, I've just been clearing through my granddad's possessions, um, and I think these are what you were looking for, being following the story closely. So it's obviously somebody that has seen our stories. Um, I don't know if you, you've read, but we had a mm-hmm. penis amnesty um, last year <laughs> because the um, it was that part that the statue that we were restoring had lost several times and we'd said you know it'd be great to maybe find one of these that were you know lying as relics in somebody's house and instead of one they <laughs> delivered six.
2: So the the statue <laughs> at the center of this mystery just to let our uh, listeners in is, is the statue of your town's founder it's in storage right now and as, as uh, our listeners just heard Chris mention uh, it's it's constantly missing missing appendages uh, and, and body parts so it's in storage right now right?
6: It is, yeah. Um, so it's it's in a bit of a, 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 a shabby state. It's mm. been kicked about so many times. Um, like you said, it has missed its uh, its phallus. Well, I mean, the, there must be three, four, five of them around the town somewhere. Um, but it's lost. You know, the, the back of its head. It's missing the foot, hands, etc. There's all Are sorts of parts that's gone. I, you know what? I think it's it. It, it sounds like. a... A bit of a silly way of putting it, but almost it's it's the townspeople taking it into their ownership in a lot of ways. You know, if you can, I don't know, break its its willy off and keep it in your in your drawer or something. It's a part of that founder's statue that is that is with you forever. You know.
2: But it, it to be clear, the gifts that you received from that mystery sender, you don't think they belong to the statue.
6: In some ways, I mean, I'm I'm guessing that if this person has followed the story, then they must know, you know, that their grandparent was maybe a sculptor or an apprentice sculptor or somebody who helped in it. Otherwise, I don't know how you would get the link, to be honest. So I think there might be some kind of original penis sort of story in there, but I don't think they're the ones that were broken off it i think they were maybe maquettes or mm. you know workups to uh to, to maybe cast off
2: i see you and your partner are working on uh making a new statue to replace the old one right so are you going to integrate <laughs> one or more you know of know these what? pieces
6: I, I think we need an absolute halo of them around and don't we we need uh we need a, a i don't know them. i
2: don't so, know uh, if i would say yes to that but it's <laughs>
6: your town it, well, it is. Isn't it? Yeah, my, myself and Darren Neve, who I co-own um, the uh, the Turntable Gallery with, we are working with our local college to bring a statue back to the plinth from which Grimm was taken. So we're we're kind of working with the students. We want them to create something which, which they actually want to see.
2: Is the measure of success for you and the team then to have people continue to break off its parts or would success be... It stays as is for eternity.
6: Well, we are to make something that is, you know, pretty much impervious, um, and maybe it harms people by taking it off. It we could run like an electric current through it. I mean, I don't know what the, uh, <laughs> I don't know what the health and safety regs are around that, but uh, I imagine we probably can't get away with it. But yeah, um, I think that it'd be great if people still interacted with it. So okay. drawing it or, uh, or whatever, yeah, dress you can it just up and take then, a selfie uh, like you do we can do exactly. Yeah, that's a. It's a lot less interventionist, is not it? If the mystery
2: <laughs> sender happens to be listening, yeah. which I'm sure they are, what would you want to say to them?
6: You know what? I I think that they should probably stop sending unsolicited uh, unsolicited boxes of penises to people. It's uh, it's it's quite inhospitable. Uh, no, I. Uh, it'd be great to meet them, to be honest. It'd be uh, it'd be lovely to see what the actual story is and the circumstances. I mean, it's. For them, you kind of think, it it, it probably kind of mortifying knowing that your granddad had kept this, this cookie tin full of penises around the house.
2: Dale, thank you.
6: No worries. Thank you ever so much.
3: Dale Wells is an artist and the owner of the Turntable Gallery in Grimsby. We reached him in Cleethorpes, England. Prosthetics have come a long way, whether we're talking about cosmetics, cost, or comfort. But even the most sophisticated artificial limbs still have their limitations, and a new device aims to address one of the big ones. It was developed by researchers in Italy and Switzerland. It's called the Mini Touch. Paired with an ordinary prosthetic hand, it's a step toward restoring a full range of senses to people with amputations, starting with Temperature. Francesco Ibarite is the co-author of a new study on that device, which is still in the experimental stage. We reached him in Pisa, Italy.
2: Francesco, what does the mini touch look like?
7: Uh, the mini touch uh, looks like a small box that, that the moment we put in on top of a prosthesis, obviously we plan to have that uh, completely integrated into the shape and the structure of the of the socket of the prosthesis. So, together with that, that we can see as the brain of the system. We have a small um, piece of metal that we call a thermal display that is placed directly in contact with the skin. That is the device that changes its own temperature to deliver this information to the that subject. That goes right on the fingertip? And obviously, no, no, no. no. So the, the the display is on the on the residual limb, and the sensor is on the fingertip of the prosthesis. So uh, the temperature that is read by the sensor is provided to the user uh, with the Thermal display on the skin of the user. Our discovery of the last year proved how we can use some specific locations of the skin to project the thermal sensation directly on the phantom hand. Thanks to this, we can we can elicit, we can evoke thermal sensations on the phantom hand of the subject. Obviously, from the perspective of the of the subject, then that means that they touch with a finger, an object, and the same finger of the phantom hand feels the sensation.
2: Your subject, Fabrizio, the participant, how did Fabrizio react?
7: So uh, Fabrizio was very surprised every time he was able to feel a sensation that usually are very subtle and also hard to describe. So, for example, when he was touching my skin, while we were shaking our hands or in general during the experiments, He he, he was, I was surprised for him eh, because he wasn't used to feel that on the phantom hand. Obviously he's familiar with the sensation because he has the other hand, but feeling that on, on the hand that he's still missing is for him a very strong sensation because it gives him the person, the human connection. And that's a lot about this new prosthesis is about.
2: You mentioned, yes. this, you mentioned that you mentioned that this is an external device right now. Ultimately, you and your team yes. want to create a, an artificial limb or a prosthetic that incorporates this, this technology that you've put together. Can you imagine a time in the near future where that is widely available to patients?
7: So we expect to be able to deliver this technology to the, to the market in the next years. Right now, the most important thing we need to do is to clinically validate the, the effects, the long-term effects of using a, such a prosthesis. B- because uh, clearly during the, the short time we had available for our experiments, we were able to um, to measure some improvements in the way in which the sub- subject was f- using his prosthesis. Uh, but we expect to have a, an overall improvement of the quality of life of any subject that is using this prosthesis over time. And to measure these things, these things, to see these things happen, takes time. And also re- repeating the same experiments with multiple people to prove how widely available um, is the uh, how widely usable is this technology for the public. We are pretty happy of because the the way in which the system works, it doesn't rely on any surgery. So that means that. Anyone that is interested even to try that can. Um, so that's why we really want to have that to the mar- ready for the market, but obviously it takes some time and testing before proving how effective it is.
2: Is there a lineup of people who, who want to, to try it out?
7: So, yeah, I mean, obviously many of the subjects that have already tried that ask us to, to have mm-hmm. the device for, for during their, their daily life, they they cannot wait to do that it, it's nice because obviously after these experiments we keep we keep in contact with with uh, with our subject mm-hmm. usually because they they are very interested and invested into the cause uh they feel what they're doing as uh, very important for the others mo- mostly that for because for them is mo- is mostly a job because they, they spend days hours of their time to help us but they're extremely proud of what they're doing because they know that this is helpful, if not for them, for the next generation of people that are using a prosthesis.
2: And no, you reported no um, adverse effects
7: for the for Fabrizio. No, and others. No, no adverse effects. Let's say uh, during the experiments. Obviously, depending on what type of objects you are manipulating, you may feel your fan- he may feel he may have felt uh, his phantom uh, limb colder. So there's there's a very funny moment in which after uh, after a long sequence of uh, experiments he was, in which he was asked to manipulate cold object, he asked me if I was so kind to hit a little bit his finger because it was a little bit frozen. And that was a very strong moment because we, we realized that for him wasn't, it wasn't a, an illusion, it was a real experience. And his, his finger was cold and he needed a way to heat it up. Mm-hmm. So, but let's say, we we're, I wouldn't define that as um, an adverse effect. It's not an adverse effect, and there's no known ways to cause pain or, in general, to have problems during this type of experiments.
2: I, I was reading that Fabrizio uh, would love to, to use this to cook more.
7: Yes, yes. He's, he's, a, real, uh, he's a really passionate cook, cook, and he does that for his own family. And he said, you know... Um, cooking is a moment in which I, I really miss not, ab- not being able to feel the temperature because it, it, it let it lets you do things without, without looking at what you're doing and that's obviously something that I really miss.
2: Francesco, thank you for your time.
7: My pleasure. It was a pleasure to be able to explain a little bit more what we're doing here. Thank,
2: thank you very you. much. Thank you. Take care.
3: Francesco Iberite is a PhD candidate at the Biorobotics Institute of Santana. We reached him in Pisa, Italy. Birch bark scrolls are an important part of Anishinaabe culture. They're used to record histories and tell stories for future generations. So when a collection of birch bark scrolls popped up for sale on an auction site, it got the attention of Whitney Gravel. She's the president of Bay Mills Indian Community in Michigan, and she was willing to get those scrolls back for her people at any cost. We reached Whitney Gravel in Chicago.
2: Whitney, in the end, how much did it cost you to get these four scrolls back? What was the winning bid?
0: The winning bid at the end of the auction was 7500 U.S. dollars. But afterwards, when we began to process payment, we ended up paying a total of 10500 because there was a buyer's premium and auction house fee as well as some sales tax associated with the purchase.
2: So that's more than uh, 14000 Canadian dollars just for our listeners in Canada uh-huh. as well how do you how do you weigh you know that cost out of pocket with the importance of getting these back for you and your community?
0: You know, when I really began to first approach the auction, I was prepared to spend any amount necessary to make sure that these scrolls were returned back to their communities. They're truly, priceless pieces that have a sacred place, not only in our history, but in our current culture and modern day practices. And, you know, I'll I'll throw in there, I didn't want them to be very expensive, but I was prepared to fight for them through any means possible.
2: And was it a fight? Was there furious bidding?
0: Yeah, there was. So when we actually entered into the auction, it's done online and you're kind of in this anonymous bidding box where you just simply click a button. And prior to the actual auction going live, there was a series of pre-bids that took place. So initially it started at a few dollars, but as folks were entering pre-bids leading up to the auction, the price was already sitting at 4500 U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. And so once we actually entered into the auction, the bids would increase by increments of 250 US dollars and so it would go from 4500 increase 250 and then with each subsequent bid it kept going up
2: when it was in the heat of it and you saw the bids going up and you said it it was getting heated what i mean was it was it nerve-wracking
0: it absolutely was i participated in the bid process myself and it was very anxiety-inducing because you're trying to fight and get back something that's extremely precious to you. But it's also uh, you're committing, you know, thousands of dollars towards the purchase itself, and then to have you know an individual or multiple individuals fighting you to also get the same item. It was really frightening to be part of that process, and you know, simply wanting to have something that was taken be returned to your community. So. I would not want to do it again, um, but I'm glad we were able to play a small role in making sure that these scrolls were returned home.
2: And describe what's on them for our listeners.
0: Yeah, so what we ended up being able to get back is four birch bark scrolls. Uh, Two of the scrolls are unidentified, and because the images on the auction site were very low resolution, we weren't able to decipher their teachings or the wisdom that they carry prior to making the purchase and then two of the scrolls one was labeled the migration story and the other one was labeled ghost lodge and so once we get the scrolls and return them back to our tribal nation we'll be able to decipher the teachings and the wisdom contained within
2: so it sounds like there are a lot of questions still to be answered that 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 you all have. You haven't seen them in person yet. You haven't been able to authenticate them. In the end does it does it matter to you if all of that money was spent and and these are not authentic?
0: No, it doesn't because you know we had that conversation prior to participating in the auction and we made the determination that even if it turns out the scrolls were not authentic, we wanted to remove them from circulation. So that they could not be utilized or, um, you know, presented in a way where they could take advantage of another tribe in the future. So one of our first steps once we return the scrolls back to our tribal nation is to first verify their authenticity. Once we do that, we are going to gather our elders and experts to then, you know, if they are authentic, decipher the teachings contained within.
2: Our colleagues at CBC Indigenous learned the auction house was actually contacted by the FBI and was told to go ahead w- with the sale. But but there are U.S. laws that require items that are in museum and institutions to be re- repatriated to, to First Nations. Do you believe that, that there needs to be a shift and that law needs to be extended to auction houses and private collectors as well?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I think before we even get into the process of talking about what laws could be implemented to do so. I think there needs to be more training and awareness brought towards private collectors on the types of items that they're holding, as well as the sacredness that they have towards many Indigenous communities, no matter what the item is. You know, for birch bark scrolls in our teachings, they're very much living things. They have a spirit. They contain teachings. And so it's very imperative that they're also taken care of in a certain way.
2: How are people in Bay Mills feeling?
0: I think there's a lot of apprehension, you know, first in verifying the authenticity of the scrolls, but also a sense of pride in being part of the story of these scrolls and making sure that they're returned home.
2: Whitney, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.
3: Whitney Gravel is the president of Bay Mills Indian Community. We reached her in Chicago. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to another shocking episode of How Did This Pregnancy Occur? Charlotte had it all. A reasonably spacious home. A long venomous tail. A flat body that allowed her to hide in sand to pounce on unsuspecting shrimp. And a thriving career as a stingray in an aquarium in North Carolina. Everything was great. But in September, staff at the Aquarium and Shark Lab by Team Echo noticed that Charlotte was pregnant. She's expecting up to four pups, but the identity of the other parent was a mystery. Aquarium staff were faced with shocking possibilities, which shocked them. Was it one of her tank mates, both male white spot bamboo sharks? Okay, okay, settle down, settle down. Or... Was Charlotte the Stingray's unknown impregnator, a stingray named Charlotte? As in, shockingly, Charlotte herself. Okay, okay. All right, come on, live studio audience. Settle down, I said. Thank you. Now... The executive director of Team Echo, which runs the aquarium, says maybe the stingray and one of the sharks were star-crossed lovers, although there's no evidence that has ever happened on Earth. Or maybe Charlotte became pregnant by parthenogenesis, a rare reproductive strategy in which a female reproduces asexually, which has happened before on Earth. Which could it be? It's the second thing, but the aquarium insists it might not be the second thing, and we should all stay tuned and wait for Charlotte to give birth to unprecedented shark-ray hybrids or little clones of herself. It will be the second things. Whichever you're hoping for, though, good luck. Until those pups are born, Charlotte is a ray of hope.